All right. How are we all? That's really cool. Well, I'm going to put this here and don't be distracted thinking I'm going to kick it or sermon because I won't. Yeah, that's right. Famous last words. So, um, all right. The time is, the date is the 5th of June, 1944. We all good with that? Can't understand what's happening in, on the 5th of June, 1944. No, you weren't, Denji. You were not born. And um, so, 5th of June, 1944, paratrooper Private Robert C. Hillman um, was en route to Normandy aboard a Allied C-47 transport plane. Uh, he was serving as part of the 101st Airborne Division and um, their mission was to then drop in behind Nazi lines and establish bridges and roads and causeways and things as part of, well, ahead of the D-Day landing as part of Operation Overlord that was to then establish an Allied toehold in, in mainland Europe. And he, in the dim light, it's, well, it's almost midnight, almost the 6th, and he's in the dim light of the plane and he's going over his parachute. He's inspecting it as a paratrooper. That's what you want to do, allegedly, if you don't want an intimate date with the ground at terminal velocity. So he's inspecting his chute and he's surprised to understand that it, uh, it's made by, was packed by um, Pioneer Parachute Company of Manchester, Connecticut, which happens to be his hometown. And so he's like super connected to this parachute all of a sudden. It's just like, of all the parachute companies that, you know, were supplying parachutes for the war effort, his ended up with him. And he knew this company really well because his mum was a part-time inspector there just to help out with the war effort, as a lot of ladies did uh, in those days. Um, you know, the men went off to fight, women stepped up like all good women do, and they just threw everything and, and they did a fantastic job. They kept the countries running and moving um, while everyone was away and fighting. So he knew the company well, it was his hometown and he's specially connected to it. So then as just he's, he's wiggling his, his pack, his big heavy pack around, it's full of you know, medical kit and ration packs and whatever and he's trying to shift around with his, um, his rifle and his pistol, he's, he's fully loaded up, he's ready to jump out of a plane and one final check, he, he checks the uh, inspection tag on his parachute just, and he is surprised and overcome with the comforting joy to see the initials of his own dear mum on his parachute's inspection tag. So, imagine that, you know. He's a fully equipped soldier. He's about to jump into... Uh, the heat of battle behind enemy lines. And his mum has not only packed his lunch, no, she didn't do that. She packed his parachute for him. And now that, that is confidence, hey, that comes from trusting, safe, loving hands. Now we're going to fast forward a lot of time um, into the future, a time yet future, okay? And today we're in Revelation 11 and we are talking, we're going to read and hear about God's two witnesses who are thrown into the terrible tribulation time. And um, these guys are kind of like some sort of X-Force uber prophets in a way. And they're going to preach God's word to a world, world, word, world, preach God's word to a world who hates it. Now, just a note on the outset, as we're talking about these two witnesses, okay, you aren't one of these witnesses and there aren't 144,000 of you like some people who come door knocking down your street on a Saturday morning might attest to. All right, these are God's two unique witnesses, two unique people, um, with gifted in a unique way um, to come along at a unique period in God's created time. But we can look at these guys and we can get good examples um, to take away and to apply to our lives um, as we seek to uh, do our way through Revelation. Okay, so in particular, my hope that this morning is that as we look at these two witnesses um, and we, it, we understand them, my hope that it, we would change, that 
I hope that we would change by getting more hard forged steel around our backbones and of armor plating in our witnessing lives for Jesus out in the everyday parts of our lives. That's, that's where I hope we can go today as we look at these guys. So let's start reading. We're going to read, start reading in Revelation 10 um, section. I'm just going to pinch a bit that Raji took us through last week. Um, we'll start reading in verse 10 of chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the outer court of the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And they have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them, and at the hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And we'll stop it there. So, notice first, as we, we, we started in the end of chapter 10, um, and the bit that uh, Daniel brought us last week, um, John eats this little scroll that tastes delish and then turns crook in his guts, okay? And from this then he is told he must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, in effect opening up this next segment to the whole world, chapter 11. So he's been immediately then given a tape measure and he's told to go measure up that temple, and although, and the altar, we heard about the altar the other week, and all those worshipping in it, and, but he is told to not measure the outer court of the temple. So what's with this measuring? Like, this is just really weird. You read the first paragraph and you're just like, why do we need to know? What's going on? So let's think of an example of measuring a building. If, if I'm selling my house now, I know, I know, a hundred and something year old worker's cottage with a leaky roof that is a bit run down on the outside. It's a massive selling point. But humour me, um, if someone has committed to buy my house, they might ask to then come through and measure up some rooms to see where their things are going to go. Um, because they're about to take ownership of it. Actually, Alan went through a perfect example of this. Thanks, mate. You're just, you'll be in my muse today. Um, Alan went through this same experience when he was selling his house. He's just gone through and it was settlement and he's moving out. Um, when people committed to buy his house, they came through with their builder and they were measuring up planning extensions and things. Now, if, if those people with their builder had shown up without committing to buy Alan's place, he probably would have called the cops and told them to get lost. Isn't that right? 
Mm, exactly. See, they were taking ownership of it. So similarly, this is the symbolic meaning of God, well, telling John to measure up a physical temple. The Bible always relax, uh, relates the act of measuring something to ownership of it. So God owns the temple, he owns the altar, and those, you know, those prayers coming from it, we talked about that a month or so ago, uh, he owns the people worshipping in it. That's his. Notice the exclusion, however, the outer court, the rest of that holy city, Jerusalem. It's not to be measured. This is the part that's to be overrun by nations and trampled. So, the eating of this little scroll and the roller coaster ride of feeling, yum, is tied to this, I think. Sure, worldly people like the benefits of living in a world that's been so heavily impacted by Christianity. It's sweet, okay? They love rational order that comes from Christian, Christian background laws and things. They love the good things that were birthed in Christianity, like hospitals and universities and orphanages. These things are great, sweet things. And they love the immaterial laws that they, they use these to understand the world, like maths and emotion and just general rational thought. And they, they, they love those morals. Oh, do not murder, do not rape, do not steal. They love those morals. But... When the, when the Word of God then begins to run contrary, like the grains twist and they, it runs contrary to what these people selfishly want and um, that what they desire out of their own sinfulness. And when the Bible then demands things like, uh, take up your cross daily and follow me, uh, love your enemies and only have sex in a lifelong monogamous man-woman relationship or marriage, I should say, then it turns sour within them. And then they distance themselves from it. They're happy being outside the temple with the pretense of being good or uh, maybe religious, only partly associated um, with God's temple and his people. And so hence their likeness to overrunning the outer court, okay? They aren't truly in the temple. They're not true friends of God. They aren't true worshippers. They're just hanging around to give that impression of godliness hanging around to uh, feel better about themselves and hanging around to um, look inclusive. So God is showing that by not measuring them, He doesn't approve of them, He doesn't own them, He doesn't approve of their ways. So, Now, in this end time period, God allots an amount of time that the temple's out of court. In this first paragraph, He allots an amount of time that this is to be overrun. Now, how long is that? that the, temp, the outer court's meant to be overrun. 42 months. Those that are really good at maths, 42 months, 12 months in a year, how many years is that? Three and a half, absolutely, Luke. Sold to the gentleman in the red hurley shirt. Um, so to these nations who are to overrun the outer court, God sends his two witnesses. And two witnesses, two is the minimum number of required witnesses in the Bible, um, to attest to uh, something being true. That's can be found in places like Deuteronomy and Matthew and things. Now, these two witnesses are given the authority by God to prophesy for how long? That's right, Niles. 1,260 days. Now, those who can dominate maths or are just really good at guessing how many 365 days in a year... Carry the one, do, 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 do a bit of rounding. Yeah, three and a half years. Yeah, I think because there's a bit of a calendar oddity there. I think the old calendar um, months used to be 30 days, so 360 days in a year. Um, we've got 365 now, so it comes out to 3.4-ish or 5-ish or something. Um, very close to three and a half years. So it's outside the scope of where I want to uh, focus on today, but I, would, I thought I'd just bring that in just so that you can, you, everyone's aware of it. You can go away, do your own homework on the two, three and a half year sections and the timing around those. I'm not going to go into tribulation timings today as it'll take us off track from the heart of our message. Um, but there are two schools of thought around it. These um, either put them as two, three and a half year separate sections or they overlap them. So whichever one you adhere to, that's fine. Um, regardless, it doesn't change our message this morning that the people that these two witnesses are sent into the midst of are God-hating people. All the terrible judgments that have happened in the world, 
you know, um, meteorites and, and demons just running, running rife and water going sour and, and people dying everywhere. All these terrible things that are happening on the earth and people are still hardening their hearts. They're continuing in their idolatry and their sexual immorality and their kleptomanical murderous ways. Okay, they're still doing those sorts of things. Yet God still has his hand outstretched in this grace period of our sixth trumpet. Um, he's got his hand outstretched to humanity in front of this backdrop of worldwide destruction. You can just imagine the destruction coming along and God's still there with his hand out wanting people to accept him, wanting to save people. Now, I watched a new Star Wars film the other day and this scene sort of pulled out what, like how, how I imagine this. So, um, for those of us that haven't seen it, I'll try and describe it. There's a Death Star, right? It's this big giant laser that can blow up planets. Like, what Star Wars movie is complete without that? Okay, so it's a new one. That this new one, this massive big um, laser that can destroy a planet. And this planet has been shot with it. And this planet is tearing itself apart and it's just rippling out and just breaking into its basic elements. And it's just blasting around. These massive shockwaves of, shockwaves of planet-ripping energy are rippling out from the... From the um, the epicenter of where this laser blast hit. And there's this plane flies in, there's these people trying to escape the planet and this plane flies in just as this huge wave of destructions coming and these, these people jump on this plane and they leave the planet just in time and then just destruction just overwhelms, rips the planet apart and it's completely destroyed. That's how I imagine this. In God's hand, that safety, there is still you know, a way out but trust in Jesus, repent of your ways and trust in Jesus. And that's the message that these two witnesses bring. Now, note when these two witnesses show up, what are they wearing? Sackcloth, okay? And so we more commonly know it as Hessian, that's right. So there's an interesting point actually to be pulled out here because today is which means Palm Sunday, which means yesterday is the last day of Lent, exactly. And what is a, well, those of us that have had a um, bit of experience in higher order churches, we might have on Ash Wednesday had an ash cross put on our face. Uh, we might have taken uh, like pledges to um, fast during the 40 days of Lent or for some period of it. And this is just a little, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time in the church's calendar where in some small way Christians try to uh, represent or replicate or um, Jesus suffering, going into the desert for 40 days to be tempted um, by the devil. So, if you have had one of those orders, you've, yeah, you've probably had the ash cross or the or whatever, um, taken the, the fasting, those sorts of things. Um, these come out of the Old Testament times when um, really bad news came to someone or um, people were repenting. You remember in Nineveh, a lot of people tore their clothes put ash on their head and, and, and wore sackcloth. Um, kings would do it um, if they heard of terrible things or they were repenting um, or something terrible had just happened to them. So these two witnesses show up wearing this sackcloth, this hashen, hessian. So when they do show up in this modern world of finely woven materials and fine clothes and Armani suits, Wearing, two guys wearing Hessian bags is going to raise a few eyebrows, isn't it? It'll, they'll really stand out. To think of this even back a little bit more in the context of Revelation, Revelation was sent to how many churches? Parky, come on, mate. Fail. 16, no. How many churches? Seven, that's right. Come on, don't listen to this guy. He's leading us all astray. Um, <laughs> Yes, Revelation is sent to seven churches. Now, one of these churches had a real wealthy image problem, didn't it? Didn't they? And that, who was that? Laodicea. They were wealthy. Um, the, Laodicea as a, as a city was wealthy from banking and trade and the fine uh, black wool that was produced in the area around it, used for making really fine clothes. So, to Christians who are accustomed to wearing that, would this image of God's two witnesses showing up wearing sackcloth, which is just an itchy material made of jute and hemp fibres and a bit of filthy goat's hair woven into it. Um, 
Would that have hit some raw nerves on these Christians? They're accustomed to wearing the really nice stuff. Very affirmative, Gabs, thanks. Sackcloth was to them, well, you know, sackcloth. Look it up in the Greek. It's probably cloth for making sacks out of, you know? Like, that's what sackcloth was. It was that low, that base material. So the error of these Christians' ways would have been made really clear um, when God's chosen witnesses, they're equipped and they're empowered by God, show up with no need or want or desire for the fine things, the fine clothes, the fine things of this world. So Adrian brought us this message about probably a month ago now, or was it a few weeks ago? I can't remember. I was probably asleep. Um, The most expensive house. Sorry, mate, I had to get you back for the six churches thing. Um, The most expensive house okay, a few weeks ago. Uh, it's this massive object of desire for, the, from the, for people of the world, okay? So it's just a reminder that the lure of wealth is strong. And here's the warning early, okay? Don't go chasing after the things of this world or Babylon as um, uh, Revelation refers to this world. So is amassing wealth important? No. Will it save you? No. Will the desire of amassing wealth ever be fully satisfied? No. And will it distract you from being a strong witness for God in this life? Absolutely yes. So, be wary, Willowburn, of your love for money and nice things. Your identity is not the house you live in. Your identity is not the car you drive. The identity is not the clothes you wear or the fancy food that you take photos of before eating it. (laughs) Not looking at anybody. Okay, your identity is as a child of God. And you are bought by Jesus' blood. You've been pulled off a course set for eternal separation from God. This, This is who you are. And you are set to enjoy God then forever in the new heavens and the new earth that He's preparing, that He is going to make. So, you're in exile here. Peter tells us that. You're, you're in exile here. You're lower than an asylum seeker. See, an asylum seeker is trying to put down roots. Asylum seeker is finding somewhere to make a home down here. You're, you're not that. You're, you've got to keep moving. Don't settle. Just keep moving en route with Jesus to your heavenly home. So that's who you are. That is who you are. All right? Don't get dragged into the luxuries and comforts of this world and take your foot off the pedal and just start taking things easy. God has equipped you for greater things. So put all the earthly stuff aside, as Lent reminds us, and these sackcloth-wearing witnesses. Now, in the authority of God, that He has given these two witnesses, right? He has equipped them with all they need to do their ministry, to do their mission. Did our private C. Hillman, our paratrooper from the start, was he thrown out of a plane with just a kite to break his fall and a stick to hit the Nazis with? No. (laughs) Wake up, everybody. (laughs) No, he wasn't, okay? A good commander makes sure sure his, his workers are equipped, in which case the same way God has equipped these workers. And these guys have some awesome gifts. They have some awesome skills. You know, he's talking back to me. He's coming at me with a stick. Fire comes out of his mouth, burns these dudes up, you know, awesome gifts, all right? Or, you know, the power to shut up the sky for for three and a half years, like, hey, listen to me. Nah, oi, listen to me. All right, no rain, three and a half years. Now listen to me. Listen to me. That's, That's quite a drought. And then they also have the ability to then turn um, blood, sorry, water into blood and bring about plagues. Now, I guess what some of you are thinking now, like if only, oh man, those, those gifts sound awesome. Like that would be so much better than my gift of serving or my gift of being able to get up in front and talk about things or my gift of uh, being able to play the guitar really well or my gift of poetry. Like, yeah, sure, those gifts get the attention of the ladies, but... Lord, I would get so much more attention if I could breathe fire. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Rudgy with his dragon comments all over it. See, was I the only one thinking that when I read this? Or has everyone just like sort of checked out and just gone to a retirement lounge? See, 
Don't be shy to fess up that, okay? This is a safe place. So, why do these dudes have these gifts? And, you know, why do they have such amazing gifts? And we, so, we understand that these witnesses are dealing uh, with hardened, um, God-hating people who have refused to repent from their wicked ways even after everything that's already happened. And so, desperate times call for desperate measures, as that old saying goes. And now is the time in God's created history for some serious um, miracles, some serious witnessing. Now, you'll remember back in um, Exodus chapter, burning bush, Exodus chapter 4 with Moses, when God gave him the ability to throw his staff down on the ground and it turns into this big, huge snake, terrifying, let's call it a king brown or a king cobra or something terrifying. It wouldn't be a green tree snake. That's way too wussy. Um, It would have to be, and he also then gave Moses the gift to um, put his hand in his cloak and pulls it out and it's all leprous and puts it back and then it's it's fine again. And he's also told that if he pours water out, it'll become blood. Um, These were given to Moses so that he could, um, he could prove that God, the Lord God had appeared to him. They were proofs. Okay. They are proofs in a culture, um, as he was going to Egypt, they are proofs in a culture that was hardened to God and these, um, they were open to the magical, uh, mystical arts or they were open to demonic miracles. These things happened there. Um, you'll remember when Aaron and Moses come to Pharaoh and Aaron throws his staff down, it turns into a big snake. Um, the Egyptian magicians also throw their rods down and they become snakes as well. But then even in that, then God shows that he is greater by Aaron's snake eating the others. Once again, God showing that he is greater and larger than these demons doing these same tricks. So, likewise, in the terrible events of the tribulation that are to happen, when the Antichrist is running the world under the power of Satan, he's going to have false signs and wonders as well. Second Thessalonians tells us that. So, these witnesses will be coming up against that. So they are equipped in this way for their three and a half year testimony with special gifts to combat what is there in the world to show that God is still greater. Now, but don't lose heart and think that your giftings are minimal. Don't doubt what God has equipped you with. Right? You've got God's spirit living within you. You've got God's spirit living within you. Do you know how much Moses, you know how many snakes and rods and, 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 and signs Moses would have given up to have the certainty of God's spirit living within him all the time? If he saw us today, he'd be like, you've got what? You've got God living in you? Understand that. Let's open our eyes to that truth, everybody. And God's spirit is... is Uh, As Psalm 18 says, He's training our hands for battle and He's equipped us to do everything good and pleasing in in God's sight, like the benediction at the end of Hebrews, I think. Let's let's read that, actually. End of Hebrews. Verse 20, Now may the God of... Sorry, chapter 30, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant... Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God has positioned you where you are to do your ministry for Him. No one else is equipped exactly like you to minister in your environment. You have your story of your encounter with Jesus. You've got your stories of how the Holy Spirit has has changed you. You've got your likes. You've got your dislikes. You've got your networks. You've got your connections. You've got your talents. Whole package, perfect for where you are, for where God has you. So this whole package that is in you is God's proof. God's proof. The others needed these miracles. This is, this is God's proof of being in you. No fire breathing necessary, despite how rad that would be. So do not doubt what God has equipped you with or, 
or, or where He has you in life. And don't spend so much time worrying about whether you should do this or stressing about that or what you're doing, where he, where he wants you to be. or Instead, just spend that energy pursuing Him in the here and now, where you are, and let Him work through you. Psalm 37, um, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart or He'll make your path straight, I think the King James says. And then the sister verse that then Jesus brings out in the Sermon of the Mount is, has been our memory verse. But seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What's all these things? All the everyday stuff, like your food and your clothes and all that stuff's looked after. When I was sitting down to write this sermon, actually, to nut it all out, it was when all that rain from Cyclone Debbie was coming through and I was sitting in my little shed and just looking out on show holiday and rain was just, just pouring down. And under our olive tree in the backyard that I can see out of my shed, there was this little bird hopping around. Just hopping around, getting a feed, eating some bugs on the grass, doing what little birdies do. And it just seems, and there's my sunflower in the garden. Those that were at prayer on Friday saw it and the sunflower was just like, oh, rain. And I'm like, like rain, like, oh man, I've got flooded gutters and I've got a leaky roof and like, it's just a nuisance. I hate it and I'd rather be outside. But rain's a blessing in the Bible, isn't it? And it's feeding, you know, this little bird. It's feeding this sunflower. This sunflower uh, is arrayed more than Solomon, as the Bible says. And here's me in, um, you know, a flanny in footy shorts, looking like a house bogan. But, you know, like... It just put my life in so much contrast, you know, just like just everything just sort of slotted down and just made sense in that moment. And God just provides for us. So focus on Jesus and you'll realize how equipped you really are to serve in the here and now instead of just putting off until some magical time when you've got all God's um, plans for your life all completely sorted out before you start slotting some kingdom goals. You know, don't, don't wait till that magical time because it's never going to come. Focus on Him. Work for Him now. You're equipped now. So, understanding, so we beat the distractions of this world, okay? Okay, we, we understand that we like sackcloth now. We don't like um, Gucci or whatever. No, not that at all. We beat the distractions and the alluring temptations of this world. All right, or, as, or Babylon, as Revelation refers to it. And then we, we fully utilize what God has given us, what He has gifted us with, what He has sown into our lives. And uh, are, we, are we home and hose then, you know, snapping heads and taking names for the kingdom, if that's the case? Like, are we really kicking goals then, just doing those two things? Almost, but no, this is the real, this is the real clincher for me. The hardest part to understand, the hardest part of the message from the, from the two witnesses is the, is the cost of being a witness. And the cost, there is always a cost. So, what's the price to pay? What, what, what did these witnesses pay? What was the cost? And why did they have to pay it? The Bible says that these witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. So what does that mean? What's what's that mean they're going to be talking about if they're prophesying? Revelation 19, a few chapters down, says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So these guys are going to be testifying of Jesus. The very same Jesus that you and I should be testifying of in our lives every day also. So they're not speaking these new crazy things. There, there might be some mixed up in there, but the majority of it will just be testifying of Jesus. So a while ago, I did a sermon on truth and sort of we discovered the, the, the God truth and where it impacts with um, man-made subjective truth and how the man-made subjective truth just like crumbles into dust um, when put up against God's ultimate objective truth standards. And in that sermon, um, for, those of us that, for those of you that heard it, or you might know of this otherwise, but the, the seeds of postmodernism that were planted last century 
by philosophers into thinking that uh, all truth's relative, no one can really know what real truth is. Those seeds that were planted have now sort of grown into a tree and that tree is dropping rotten fruit and those rotten fruits are called post-truth. So we're now in that era where we sort of move past what truth even is. And truth these days is, the view of truth in our culture today is where objective truth standards don't exist or if they sort of are there, then they should be trampled on by um, feelings and um, emotions and um, opinions. And that thinking um, and that truth should always be be quashed if a person takes any sort of objection to it. So this is the way our, our culture, this is the way our world is moving and this is the cultural landscape that I think will be rife in the time of the two witnesses. And it says in verse 10, I'm, putting, I'm, I'm laying out a few dots here so I will, I will connect them in a bit. So we understand our, our post-truth world and you can sort of extrapolate that to understand where we may get to some stage in the future. And then it says in verse 10 that the witnesses have been a torment to those on the earth. So what true, let's think about what being a torment to those on the earth means. Like what true witnesses of King Jesus would come and torment people? Why, why does it say they tormented those on the earth? Were they unnecessarily tormenting people for fun? They were given powerful abilities, yeah, but for self-defense in a way. You, you see, you look, the fire comes out of their mouth when people come to hurt them. And the other miracles and things that they're given, the three years without a drought, the three years of, three and a half years of drought and the, the water to blood and the, and the plagues, all for the arresting the attention of hardened hearts away from what is going on, arresting them and bringing them back, the messages, much like the plagues in Egypt were for why Moses was given those, his gifts. Now, would our God, whose main attribute is love, send his messengers to mercilessly torment people with no hope of being saved? No, absolutely not. The evil demons that escaped from the pit earlier in chapter 9, they did a pretty fine job of doing that, and they're the absence of God. They did, yeah, they hurt people for, for five months. So knowing God, I'm sure that the torment that is bought by the two witnesses is the torment of God's ultimate truth proclaimed without fear to the hearts of people who have hardened their hearts against this truth and are trying through any and all means to suppress it. So we see people trying to suppress God's truth all the time. Um, whether it's just a mild watering down of what the Bible says or whether it's out and out militant shouting down God's word as bigotry and intolerance. Sinful people are, are inwardly writhing in discomfort from the, from the ancient lie of sin within them and this ancient lie is causing them to uh, twist and flick about, lashing out under the pure, laser-like, focused beam of God's refining truth that is unwavering in its intensity and purposes on them. So, I think of a scene, uh, another movie, The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this preacher guy, he does his sermon prep by watching movies. Um, that was a joke, everybody. Thanks, Beach. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of the scene in Lord of the Rings. I think it might be the second movie. I'm not sure. I don't actually read this book every year like, some, like a very good dear friend of mine does. It's got dragons in it. I can't, st I can't stand it. No, I love, the, I love the book and I love the movies as well. Um, so I was reading this and this, this scene, sorry, I was watching this and this scene really stuck out to me and sort of describes what I'm getting at with the, with the in, with sinful nature, wrath, um, um, lashing about and just being really angry under, under God's persistent um, um, truth. And it's where uh, Frodo and Samwise um, are dragging um, Gollum along and they've used their elven rope. Now the elves in Lord of the Rings are this kind of like almost holy race, they're pure, they're good, they're immortal. Um, 
And they've, they made this rope and they gave it to Samwise and, and Frodo. And this rope they've used, they've tied it around Gollum's neck and they're leading him along like a dog or a goat because he was fairly stubborn. And this Frodo, we all know who Frodo is. Frodo's that tortured soul that's been so... Uh, um, He's, he's, he's been in possession of the evil ring for too long and it's permeated into him, it's changed him, it's turned him into this real shriveled, uh, dependent, evil little thing, okay? And so as these guys have got this pure rope around, Frodo, um, around Gollum's neck and Gollum's riding around, he's smashing his head on the ground, he's arching his back, he's getting dragged through the dirt and he's just... He is hating it and he's screaming out, it burns, it burns, because it's around his neck. You know? this, is how I, this is the image that I get of a sinful nature within somebody when they're presented with God's truth. I was talking with Luke, Luke about this at home group on, on Tuesday night. Um, um, yeah, how there is pride in, uh, you, you watch debates between like a theist and an, an atheist and... When a godly truth comes out, the atheist cannot, there's, there's a pride there, but they just don't know what it is and it's hurting them in some way. They just lash out with like insults or some other way. They cannot rebut it and they've just, they're, they're tortured because of it. They're tormented because of it and they lash out in these ways. So the sinful nature will do anything to stop tormenting, anything to stop the truth, exposing it, anything to stop the burning and discomfort anything at all, even kill. And so, so here, little Willowburn is where we are confronted um, with the true cost of being the bearers and the proclaimers of God's truth. These witnesses are given authority to proclaim the testimony of Jesus for a time and then once their ministry is complete, they're killed by the beast and the revelation account of their death and the treatment of their bodies is quite disgusting. Their bodies are left in the street where they're killed and people from everywhere stare at their lifeless bodies as they rot, just lying in the street. They, they're even denied the base decency of a burial. Such will be the world's hatred of them for speaking the truth of our Lord Jesus. This is, this is not the worst of it though, because it, it, it gets even worse. There springs up a festival of rejoicing. It's kind of like an anti-Christ Christmas or an anti-Christmas, okay? There's gift giving and they're having a merry old time celebrating the death of these two people. How twisted is that? Regardless of how evil a person is, you just don't celebrate the death of somebody. Like, what's going on? Such, such will be the joy of these people for finally being free of these proclaimers of the good news. If we juxtapose this anti-Christmas with Christmas, you know, what is Christmas time? It's joy to the world. A saviour is born to us. Yeah, it's great news. There's new life. A baby is born, new life, to bring new life for everyone, the whole world. That's what Christmas is. That's why it's such a joy. But this Antichrist Christmas is, pre, um, is set up with that eagle circling overhead and it's screeching. It's woe to the world, woe, woe to the world. And there is celebrating and rejoicing because they have done away with the Saviour. They've done away with these two witnesses. And that's where they're, um, that's what the world will be then be celebrating. The rejection of the Saviour. So this is just another reminder that we are to take God's message out under the expectation of heavy resistance. It's like, this isn't new, guys, is it? Jesus told us many times, even when he was walking around, the world will hate you because it hates me. These witnesses are then killed in the city where, get this, their Lord was crucified. So even in death, Jesus has led the way for his witnesses to follow him in. 
Now, understanding the seven churches that this book was addressed to, the church that was copying all sorts of um, hatred, persecution, flack from the world around it was Smyrna. Exactly. Thanks, man. And what was the message to them? Hold out through persecution. Don't buckle. Don't bow down. Lay down your life for truth, following Jesus, and persevere to the end with the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. Yeah? Absolutely. So, you could just imagine these, 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 these saints in, in Smyrna. You can imagine these saints in um, Syria at the moment, or Iraq, or any time they're just like, why should we hold strong? Why? Why should I watch my kid get crucified? Why should I watch my wife get raped? Why should I watch my kids get their fingers cut off? Why should I watch my kids get gassed to death? Why? So the message to Smyrna was to be faithful unto death and receive the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, if you're, if, if you're born twice, if you're born physically from your mum and then you're born physically, uh, spiritually through Jesus' blood, then you'll only ever have one death. And that's the death where this, this temporary body dies. And then you will never see death ever again. Whereas if you're only born once, you're only born physically from your mum, you've got inherited sin nature, and you die, you will die twice. You'll die physically, where this temporary body falls away and rots into the ground. And then you'll die spiritually, which is this second death talked about, which is the eternal separation from God. If you reject God in life, He's not going to force it on you in death. He'll reject you as well. He won't force you to love Him. He won't force you to be with Him. You will be separated from God. So after three and a half days, then the breath of life that spoke life into existence... This is, came out through the service as well, that, that spoke life out of nothing and raised Adam, a man, to life out of a pile of dust and turned back the laws of the universe to pull Lazarus out of his tomb and raised Jesus to life after, three, you know, after being in the tomb to ultimate victory over death itself. This same breath of God then breathes into these two witnesses and they stand up. And then, oh man, could you imagine the terror shock waves that would just ripple through those celebrating crowds? It's just like, I know, it comes for them hard and fast. Terror shock waves ripple through and then God calls his witnesses home. Now for Smyrna, Think about Smyrna, think about these guys in Syria, think about these guys. What amazing comfort that is for them. You know, that being a witness into death, following Jesus is nothing to fear as he is waiting just on the other side, ready to get his arms around you and welcome you home. That's the message. And then, then we see, just to finish off this chapter, we see a massive earthquake then destroys the city and thousands of people are killed. And then finally, finally, we see the fruit from the work of these two witnesses, the three and a half year work, everything that they'd gone into, their deaths even, everything. We see the fruit happen. And these witnesses aren't even around to see it. They were Jesus. They were the better place. They follow their Lord into death and they're with him then when the city walls are cracked open and the hardened hearts of many people there have their hearts cracked open. And, and many just, it says the rest just give glory to God. They give him all the glory that he's deserving of. So Willowburn, listen to these lessons from the two witnesses that are going to appear sometime in the, in the, in the near future in the streets of Jerusalem. These are future people that we're reading about. Don't be in love with the nice things of the world. Don't go chasing after them and turn your back on Jesus, the one who was crucified, the Lord Jesus. 
there is that Leonard Ravenhill quote, which I did put up on, on Facebook, and Rajie has shown it this morning, but I'll just say it for the sake of anyone who might be listening. And it says, Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? And whenever, like I've, I've known that quote in my head for quite a while now and sometimes my mind will just think back to it and it always punches me in the neck with conviction because so much of stuff that I, I, I do live for things that Jesus would be ashamed that I live for. Jesus died for more than just a fistful of earthly trinkets. Jesus died to adopt you back into the family of God and, and the riches of God, the riches of that family, the riches of the being that created the whole universe make anything and everything this world can give you infinitesimally small, approaching absolutely nothing. There's God, out of His riches, He's equipped you with everything good so that you can really crush it for him in your life of witnessing for God wherever he's put you. He hasn't left you alone in this pack of wolves. He hasn't just thrown you out there so that they can tear you apart. He hasn't dropped you out of a plane with just a stick to hit the Nazis with. Okay, he's equipped you well. And through this is the, and the ultimate equipping, guys, remember this, the ultimate equipping that so many of the Old Testament saints would have been so envious of is through Jesus' death, provided the way for him, for God to supply and provide his Holy Spirit to live within you. Think about the weight of that through the week. Just let that take over your mind. You have the ultimate gift if you have accepted Jesus as your saviour over your life. So he's equipped you also then as secondary with perfectly tailored skills, attributes, whatever, to fit in with your life and to witness for him wherever you are. And then ultimately, the really hard pill to swallow is just remember the cost that might be required of you. So from studying the, these, this ministry of these two witnesses, I have become convinced that the reason nothing good was said of Laodicea is because they had failed to get past the first hurdle. They had failed to lay off all the things of the world. But, and then conversely, the reason... Um, Nothing bad is said of Smyrna is the fact that they had got to that point where they had accepted persecution, they had accepted throwing off of this life to follow Jesus, they had accepted even to that point of death, following Him. They, they, they understood that persevering to the end and laying down just this, this, this temporary life to receive that eternal reward. So guys, there are so many people out there who buy this lie of materialism in the world, even people filling church pews everywhere, filling their life with stuff. It's just, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. So let's shake off the loves of this world and embrace the truth that we've been equipped with and um, fearlessly go out and share God's truth to um, a dying world.